All right, time to kick off our market discussion today then. And I'm joined by Richard Harris, CEO of Port Shelter Investment Management, as well as Dwee Evans, who is the head of APAC Macro Strategy at State Street Global Markets. Gentlemen, good morning and good to have you both with us. Good morning, Megan. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you know, it, Happy New Year as well, by the way. Um, this is the first time that we're speaking, first time in the New Year as well. And let's kick it off with uh, the FOMC and the U.S. Fed. Uh, the much-awaited minutes were uh, many saying, you know, many are saying that they're largely along the expected lines. And uh, the U.S. Fed remains rather elusive about, you know, how they're going to be making those rate cuts. What, what did you think of, uh, you know, what we heard overnight from Jerome Powell, Richard? Well, they probably don't really know the moment exactly when they're going to make those rate cuts. It's, uh, you know, we're looking at a direction of travel that we've known for a very long time. Uh, What's happened, of course, is that the markets have moved ahead quite significantly. They've discounted those rate cuts uh, uh, excessively, and we're in a position where they are high, the market looks fragile, and it looks uh, ripe for a fall, and we may be seeing that over the last couple of days. Right. Dweefa, what do, what's your uh, key takeaway from, you know, what we heard overnight from the FOMC? And uh, do you also think that markets have already aggressively priced in those rate cuts and we could see a bit of a reality check, a possible pullback in the stock markets? Yeah, good morning to you and Happy New Year. Um, well, the, the, the view of that, that we have had for a while and we're sticking with it, actually, is that the markets... Uh, have focused a lot more on the potential downside in the economy and have factored in both weakness in inflation and a slowdown in the economy for an early cut this year. We think that's probably a little bit aggressive. Um, There has been, and the Fed certainly doesn't want to be seen to be pushed around by the market, but we actually think that there are still certain factors out there that the Fed has actually quite consistently spoken about. Uh, Things like services and wage inflation, shelter costs, and the strength of the labor market. I think we need additional data, which may even take us, for the most part, at least this quarter and maybe the first half of this year, before the Fed will be confident enough to ease on rates, probably then somewhat aggressively in the second half of the year, but I would sort of push back on an early move. So I think the Fed here needs to be very careful that it doesn't get dragged into the market view. Um, And I think the Fed itself trying to temper expectations of rate cuts. They're coming, but they may not be coming as early as March, which many people are now expecting. Yeah, it's it's such a balancing act, isn't it? Uh, You know, they want to ensure that policy action continues to support the markets and support the economy. But at the same time, you don't want to be playing into the hands of... uh, uh, you know, the investor community in a way. Richard, uh, you know, amongst the note that you shared with us, you also said uh, something quite interesting. You said price cuts by the Fed are a myth. could you elaborate on that? Well, I don't think the Fed actually needs to reduce rates that much. I mean, one thing I think that's missed by many market observers is that China's been exporting disinflation. So we have seen all the conditions ripe for quite high inflation in the West. You know, we've seen big wage settlements. Uh, uh, we've seen pretty hot economies. Uh, and 
we're sort of all surprised why inflation's come down. Well, I think uh, China's got quite a lot to do with that, and that may well change this year. Uh, I think if the Chinese authorities actually uh, look to stimulate the market. So I think the Fed is concerned that if they cut rates too aggressively, we may see inflation come back in. I mean, it wasn't their fault that uh, inflation actually came down. <laughs> they don't want it to be their fault that inflation actually goes up. So uh, on top of that, if you're looking at two or three cuts, we're only going to be going down to around 4%, which is not that low in historical terms. That certainly is right. Um, you know, and like you pointed out, U.S. policy action also impacts the rest of the world. You know, it's uh, we live in an extremely, uh, you know, interlinked world at this point in time. And China, the second largest economy, it's been dealing with its uh, own problems as well. We've seen the recent uh, manufacturing data uh, that's continuing to decline. There's definite cracks in the real estate sector. Uh, you know, consumer ha- consumption really hasn't held up as much as one would have liked. Dweefa, what's your opinion on where do you think the China and Chinese economy could be headed at in 2024? Yeah, probably a period of uncertainty more than we've seen in China for quite some time, actually. I mean, notwithstanding the, the pandemic period. Um, you know, the, the way that the Chinese do policy and the way that they conduct policy is to maintain relatively stable policy settings. They don't. They never rock the boat. Um, it'll be March before we know what the actual quantitative growth target for this year will be. We probably think it'll be somewhere around the 5% mark that we uh, had for 2023. Um, it's a bit ambitious because the base effects will kick in and we are now very clearly in an environment where domestic consumption in China is, is, is weaker than we are anticipating in an environment where aggregate demand globally is, is weaker as well. So there are headwinds there for China. Um, the, the, the question mark about China is not necessarily the quantitative targets on, on growth, but how we navigate this year in terms of policy. And there, there's a great deal of uncertainty because monetary and fiscal policy are certainly not being used as extensively and as aggressively as they have been in other parts of the cycle over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and of course, they need to adjust policy given the downturn in the real estate market without necessarily being seen uh, to be supporting the real estate market over and above other sectors. So there's a lot for the Chinese to deal with this year. I think the best thing we can say about China this year is that the growth target will probably remain relatively unchanged, but there'll be a lot of uncertainty regarding policy direction and the aggressiveness of policy, which as an investor, you would think that until I get some clarity on policy, which you seldom get with Chinese, until I get some some clarity, uh, it might be a a bit of a drag on investor confidence again in the early part of this year. And of course, that could cascade down to the rest of the region as well. So a little bit on the back foot and defensive with this region, I have to say, given some of the uncertainty around China right now. Right. Richard, would you think that's going to be the case as well, that we'd see a certain bit of uh, opaqueness continue on the policy front? Uh, You know, the the central banks continue to uh, make some moves to pump in the money, but uh, the the levels that we've seen previously are probably not going to be something that we see in 2024, at least the first quarter. Well, I I think as Drifo says, China is all about policy, and this year will be all about policy. My sense is that we have had a very difficult year. Uh, Do we want it to continue? Is China likely to recover slowly? Probably not, because markets don't recover slowly. They hit a bottom and then they bounce sharply. I think that we may well see the authorities come in 
much stronger than they have. They've already put money into the economy. It's just not enough, and it's no good drip, drip, dripping it in. Uh, the authorities generally to move economies need to give a big signal. Uh, and I think we may well see a big signal first quarter, early second quarter, or something like that. If that happens, then I think the China markets will recover. Um, but we do need some kind of quite serious liquidity injection, very much as we saw it seen in the US and in Europe during difficult times, because the market needs to be shocked into saying, well, things aren't quite that bad. Right, and we are, and China is amongst, uh, you know, powerhouses of the world. If the engine's slowing down there, that's going to have repercussions, of course, through the rest of the world as well. I also want to take a step back and kind of look at the bigger picture, you know, besides the policy struggles and despite the economic slowdown. In addition to all of that, we've got geopolitical tensions in multiple parts of the world. And that's such a, uh, that's such a key uh, issue, I, I would say, at this point in time, especially with respect to what's happening with uh, in the Red Sea with the Houthi attacks and how that could play out and develop. Because my concern really is that while we have uh, an immediate reaction that we see on how oil gets traded and the reserves that are already in place, but it's it's so much more than just oil, isn't it? Uh, this is a critical waterway, critical trade path for the world and any f future and further escalation of this could have uh, quite a cascading effect, Richard. Uh, yes, but I'm not so sure it's that serious. If you look at how the, mar the markets have survived over the last couple of years, two major wars, uh, bank crashes in the US, They've markets actually are not very critical. They may be high at the moment but they're not critical in that sense. So uh, I think if you look at the issue of the Houthis, yes, the boats have to go around the Cape, but I think a lot of those costs will generally become adjusted in prices and adapted. Um, the, uh, the allied grouping that are looking to resist Houthi attacks have so far been really quite modest. Their rules of engagement have been extremely tight. I think they probably want to keep it there. Um, but sooner or later, you have to wonder whether that part of the world needs to be held to ransom by uh, essentially a, a group of rebels. Uh, and I think that's not going to happen. Um, so I don't think it's as serious as uh, people are making out. But of course, you know, the concern is that it may cascade into something greater. Right. Dweefo, what, what about um, you? What do you think of, you know, what we're seeing, not just in the Middle East, but even the Russia-Ukraine war shows no signs of uh, ebbing and uh, uh, things continue to remain tough. So what are you advising people in terms of uh, geographies, in terms of sectors that would be a safer bet? Yeah, it's, a, it's obviously a difficult one because mm -hmm. it's very difficult to value geopolitics. Uh, I mean, the, the, the risk from geopolitics for us is simply on upside risk on commodities, which is there in any case in OPEC policy, uh, upside risk maybe on supply disruptions regarding trade. So again, that plays into a potentially higher inflationary environment, which will put central banks on the back foot regards to policy. That's, that's, that, that's one angle to look at. Um, in, in terms of how we advise our clients on geopolitics, uh, well, the truth of the matter is when you think about some of the key areas that we are currently dealing with in terms of geopolitics, Russia, Ukraine, uh, the Israeli market is a small market, but Russia, Ukraine, Iran, bits of the Middle East, for example, they, they tend not to be very 
um, investor-heavy environment in any case. Uh, people would have reduced their exposure to these markets. Uh, it does beg the question realistically. Uh, I think it's the, it's the cascading effect that matters. And it begs the question right now, where or which part of the world is probably most vulnerable to any escalation of what we're seeing in the Middle East and in Ukraine and Russia? And you've probably still got to argue that it's Europe that is most at risk. So when we think about the bigger picture on uh, relative geographic uh, exposure this year, to us, it's still a no-brainer to be in the U.S., and out of Europe. And that's not just a relative economic growth story or a a relative uh, recovery story. Uh, It's also on the direct and indirect impact of what's going on geopolitically. So to us, it's difficult to really put an investment strategy around geopolitics, Mm. but it's relatively easier to look at Europe and say, well, you're still probably the most vulnerable region. And and we're we're coloring our views on equities in particular uh, on that basis. All right, gentlemen, uh, we'd leave it on that note. Thank you so much, Richard and Reefer, for joining us today. It has been a pleasure chatting with you.